0: Uh there's loads to do uh, together this morning. I hope you're ready to work really hard. You, you know how it is when you go to the gym and you do a really hard workout. You know how you feel at the... No, I've lost most of you. You know how you feel right at the end? You're absolutely exhausted but you kind of feel good about it. Or a meal that you've just... Packed it in, and you've eaten way too much, and the food was way too rich, but you can just about keep it in and you stagger home. I want you to stagger home a bit like that uh, this morning, but feeling that it's been really good to have eaten and feasted and tasted and worked out in God's Word in the way that we will uh, this morning. So my sleeves are rolled up as a sign of my intent. Uh, let's pray together because we all need God's help. Father, would you help us this morning? morning as we get into your word uh, to work hard on a Sunday morning we kind of uh, think about putting our feet up and reading the paper and washing the car we wish Uh, but we're here and we're going to focus on you Uh, and and you've given us your word and we're going to give it our full attention uh, and we're asking that you help it to speak into our lives give each of us what we need for this moment we pray in Jesus name amen so, last week we got going uh, in Genesis, and you remember how it ends? The world's in a mess, and we're kind of reeling with these big theological themes of creation and the fall, and the fact that we can't rescue ourselves, and then the final verses go, and see that family over there, and then the credits roll. What? What was that all about? See that family over Well, this morning is all about that family over there, and we're going to pick it up together in chapter 12 when we look at the call, the call there in chapter 12 that we just heard it read to us. So have your Bible open there in Genesis chapter 12, the Bible's in front of you, you'll have it as well. What's the page number, folks, of the one in 13, thanks. So open in front of you, 13, there it is, verses 1 to 3. And uh, Claire introduced it to us about God turning up, calling Abraham to leave and to walk into something new, a new promise that God was preparing for them. Okay, this is all very new and significant for a number of reasons. It's firstly new because we have here a living God. Now, to understand how new and different that is, we need to remember what it was like for this particular family, in the culture of their day, in their worldview, what they understood at the time. You see, in Abraham's world, the many gods, small g, that controlled their lives, were not living in any sense of being personal or in any sense that you could interact or relate to these gods, these gods, even though they controlled the destiny of our lives, were off somewhere in another place. The idea of a living God that might speak to you, a living God that you might relate to and interact with, was absolutely revolutionary. In fact, Jewish tradition wanting to emphasize the importance of this moment in the story did what Jewish tradition often does. And that's to create a story that they would tell to their children and then to their children and then to their children that would teach this important truth. Something very different was happening. Not the gods, but a living God. And so they would tell the story of how on the night that uh, Abraham was to leave his father's house, he went in to the room in his father's house. His father's name was Terah, T-E-R-A-H. He went into the Terah's room where all the statues were that represented the various gods that they believed controlled their lives. And this legend has it that Abraham took an axe and he hacked down all the statues in the room except one in the middle, placed the axe in the arms of the statue in the middle, then left the room and closed the door. They're fantastic. And the part of the story goes, Terah went into the room where these statues are and he was aghast at what had happened. How can this be? He says to Abraham. And Abraham says, well, what do you mean, how, how can this be? Well, Terah says, how can these gods do this? They have no power. In fact, these gods, I made them. They're made of stone. I carved them myself. So says Abraham, why do you still bow down to that. So we're introduced to a living God, something brand new. Second significant thing is that there needed to be a leaving behind. Abraham was being asked to leave his father's household. We might think of three bedrooms, a garage and a shed. But the idea of leaving your father's household was was so much bigger and richer in the way that they lived. It was to leave behind the ways, the beliefs, the values, the practices of the patriarch's influence, of the father's influence. This is much more than relocation. This is the living God calling Abraham out and into something new. What might that mean? Well, we need to understand again a bit more of the the, the dynamics of the religions at the time. Living where he did, when he did, Terah would have worshipped, as I've said a few moments ago, many gods. These gods, little g, were believed to be responsible for the forces that controlled their lives. It was the rain god, for example, who caused the rain or withheld the rain. If you needed rain, you needed to appease or to bless the rain god. There were gods for fertility, gods for harvest, for the wealth of the crops. In fact, for every aspect of their lives... There were these gods who controlled the forces that controlled you. Let's think then for a moment about how this worked, because it's really important to understand how it worked, because it will help us, I hope you'll see a bit later on, to understand part of this all-important story of the life of Abraham. So, how it worked was this. If you needed rain for your crops, you knew that you needed to bless or to appease the God responsible for, for the rain. So you are anxious to do that. So in order to please that God, you might offer that God some crops as an offering to show how grateful you are to that God in the hope that he would be appeased and therefore give you the rain that you were seeking. Alternatively, if you desperately needed rain and it didn't come, then you would still think, oh my goodness, the rain hasn't come because this particular God is angry with me. I must appease him in some way so I will offer some crops or something in order to appease him that rain might come in the future. And this was repeated for all the gods, whatever it was, rain, fertility, crops, uh, uh, economics, whatever, family related, the whole works, the whole of life was understood like this, appeasing the various gods. That was all well and good but it had one absolutely total fatal flaw the flaw was this it would always escalate imagine for a moment you had a good year and based on what you'd offered the previous year the gods had been kind to you and given you a a good year you want another good year But how can you expect another good year unless you show more gratitude than you did the previous year for the good one that you've just had? And so at the end of that year, you might think, well, I need to offer more than I did last time in order to make sure that the goodness of this God continues to be bestowed upon me. Equally, if you had a bad year, again, provided by that God, you would obviously not have appeased him enough. So the same pressure was on you at the end of that year to offer something more than last year in order to make sure that his displeasure is somehow abated, avoided, and he would bless you where he had withheld from you previously. So every cycle, every year, every cadence of life left you feeling the need to offer more. And so they were always looking for ways that they could express greater devotion to these gods in order to keep appeasing them more and more. Can you see the cycle? Hello? Yeah, okay, you're with me. Keep tracking. There is a point to all this. So they're in this cycle of, of what more? So they, they would offer their crops and then they would think, well, I've done that, I need to offer more. So they would offer some animals and then maybe some more animals and, and, then, and then they needed to show more devotion to their God. We so need the rain. How can we, how can we appease the rain, God, because it's been dry for three? What if we cut ourselves? And offer this rain God the very lifeblood within us as a sign of our total devotion. We are totally submitted to you, God of rain. Please give us rain. And so this would go on and on with the offerings getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Until you had nothing left to offer except the most precious thing you had, your firstborn child. That's why child sacrifice was so embedded in this system. Because what could you do to appease these gods? Year on year, as the demand increased, and so did the anxiety. And and so this was the life that terror, this was the life that Abraham grew up in. This was the, the culture of their day. Anxious, troubled, unsettling, terrible times. Because you're always wondering, have I done enough? Could I do more? No, I, I should do more again. I, I will do more again. I've done more. Perhaps I, I should do even more still. I've done even more still. Is that it? And so it goes on. Every time it went round the cycle, the anxiety would get higher, and the sacrifice would need to get bigger, and so it went on. The Lord said to Abraham, is a really important moment. The Lord said to Abraham, I want you to leave all that behind. Leave it all behind. Leave your father's ways. This was much more than coming to a new land. This was about a new way. And so in these opening verses of Abraham's story, we're introduced to a new kind of God. And we're being introduced to a new kind of way. The third significance is a legacy promised an incredible promise to Abraham that God would bless him, that his family seed would become a great nation, that that great nation would in turn become a blessing that would go to the ends of the earth. Remember how Genesis 1-11 has left us. It's left us with the world under a curse. Now suddenly, in the next page, a promise of blessing that will go through Abraham's line to the ends of the earth. We are today in the benefit of, in the fullness of that promise those thousands years ago. And if you, thank you Elizabeth, and if you've ever wondered why the book of Matthew, Matthew's story about Jesus Begins with the birth of Jesus, but starts in a really boring place. And it's so boring that most of the modern cow services miss it out. Turn to it. Matthew chapter 1. First 18 or so verses. He begat who begat him and begat him and begat him. And who and he and who. And, and, and we skip it out because we don't grasp the significance of it. We need to see today just very quickly what's there in that very first verse. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a Bible saying, take note, take note that what happened 2,000 years or more ago, 4,000 years or more from us, take that promise, is today coming to its glorious conclusion. It's in Jesus that the blessing of that God promised to Abraham would ultimately go to the ends of the earth. Paul says the same thing. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. What God said to Abraham that day was not just about him, Not just about his family, not even just about the nation that was coming into being. What God said to Abraham that day was about you and me. Never forget that you were in God's heart way back then. So the call reveals to us a living God, a, a leaving behind, a legacy promised. And then Claire intimated this, a ludicrous choice. You're going to start a new nation. Would you choose a couple that have no children and are past the age? I'd be inclined to look for a couple that were producing like rabbits and go, let's get this thing off to a jolly good start. But it was an obscure choice. Or was it because there was something else really good about Abraham that drew God to him? Well, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that. He was a pagan nomad, living in the land of the many gods. There was nothing about Abraham that caused God to choose him. And there was nothing that Abraham could offer God. God, He couldn't even offer him a child, which at least would be the, the beginnings of this new nation. You see, it's all grace. Abraham had done nothing to deserve this. He could do nothing to achieve it. And God said, you. And that's the grace that was going to extend through that nation. That's the grace that ultimately comes to me. God chooses me even though I've done nothing to deserve it. God chooses me even though I've got nothing to give to make it happen nothing to offer it's all grace it's all grace amazing start to this story of abraham typically the story of abraham is known as an example of uh, of obedient faith what's the most famous part of the story isaac isaac eventually they have a child and god says i want you to sacrifice your child And Abraham goes ahead with it almost. Uh, And that's how most of us remember and think of the story. There is something much, much bigger here that we so often miss. However, incredible Abraham's example of obedient faith was, and it was pretty amazing, it's not the main drama. Abraham's obedient faith, as I hope to show uh, later on, is simply an example of the key theme, the main drama of Abraham's life. And the main theme, the main drama is this, the covenant. This is the main deal in the story of Abraham. A covenant that God was making with Abraham God was going to bring Abraham into a covenant relationship with him. A covenant relationship is a relationship where two parties, two households, become one. They come together for the purpose of protection and provision, and it's a commitment that cannot be broken that lasts for a lifetime. And we haven't got time to look in any detail at chapters 13 and 14, but they tell a little bit more of the story of what's going on in Abraham's world. You see, Abraham and Sarah are living in a society that is very fragile, where alliances were frequently and often made in order to protect yourself. The NIV talks about kings. It's a misnomer, really. They weren't kings in the way we understand a king. They were like family leaders, or or chieftains is perhaps a a, a better word, very localised leaders. The only way you could survive in those days was to form alliances. Otherwise, you would very quickly, however big your tribe or family was, you would very quickly fall prey to somebody else who was bigger and stronger than you. So you had two choices. You could go and live in a a walled city uh, or some kind of protected city, and some of those were beginning to be established. That's what Lot chose to do, incidentally. Or you could remain a wanderer like Abraham. And then the only help for you was to make covenants with people for your provision and your protection. Chapter 14, we see Abraham doing that with the king, the chieftain Melchizedek. Now a covenant was much more than just a friendship. Much more than a business contract. A covenant was about becoming one. We talk about a marriage covenant, two people becoming one. That's the strength of the language that they used and what they lived out. They would share provision and protection and the, be- sorry, the benefits of this full covenant relationship couldn't be broken and would last for a lifetime. So chapter 12, God's making these promises to Abraham. But in Abraham's world, A promise wasn't really up to much. What you really needed to trust someone's word, in fact the only person's word you would really trust in the uncertain world of Abraham's day, was that of a covenant partner. Enter chapter 15, and the language is incredibly startling. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your great reward. Covenant language. Your protection, your shield. I'm your provision, your reward. The key dynamics of entering into a covenant relationship to be someone's protection to be their provision you bonded with them in this unbreakable bond of the covenant it would have left Abraham reeling just at God's use of the words there's also a slight play on words here that the word shield can also mean sovereign and it obviously evokes in Abraham uh, who's beginning to wonder can this really be Is the God of heaven really saying that he'll make a covenant with me, that I might become one with him? And so Abraham naturally pursues the conversation. Verse 2, he says, well, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? You see, the sign of the covenant would be the benefit of it. What will I get? Is this really a covenant? What can you give me? I haven't even got a child. And the promise is all about children. God takes him outside, verse uh, 5, and says, look at the heavens and count the stars. The interesting thing about that is that the gods that they believed in were represented by the stars. Your offspring will be greater than all the gods you've left behind when you left your father's household. And then the next verse is Abraham's response. Absolutely, crucially important. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In a world where only a covenant partner's word could be trusted, Abraham is saying, I think you are offering me a covenant relationship. But if you are not... I've learned that I can trust you. I'm still going to trust your word. I am childless. Even though my wife is beyond childbearing age, I'm going to trust you. And God said, that trust, that faith, is what takes you into the promise. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited it to, sorry, it's really hard to say, isn't it? And he credited it to him as righteousness, to be right with God, to be one with God. It's crucially important to understand that here at the beginning of the Bible, where the foundations are being laid, we are taught through this story ever so clearly That we enter into God's promise, not by our own merit or by anything we have done, but by faith in God. The New Testament is at pains to emphasise the same thing. We enter into God's promise by faith alone. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone but for everyone, also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, credit oneness, right with God, for those of us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. God had extended an invitation to Abraham that would lead him all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and all Abraham had to do was believe. And it was so. The foundations that are so important are being laid. The New Testament, again, wants to say exactly the same thing. It's by grace that you have been saved. Not by works. Nothing of yourselves. It's a gift from God. You see, people say the Bible, especially the Old Testament... Is about a list of things you have to do to make yourself right with God. They talk about the sacrifices and the Ten Commandments. It is mega misunderstood. The Old Testament and the New Testament do not teach something different. The Old Testament does not say you get to God by what you do. At key moments, the Old Testament reminds people that it's stupid to think like that. This is one of those moments. How did Abraham get to God? By faith. And that's the foundation that's being laid here. And people who say otherwise about the Bible haven't read it or understood it. And then, the whole deal is sealed. Verse 9, Abraham hears the words that he must have longed to hear. The promise was becoming a real covenant. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Come on, then, God says, let's do it. That's what you needed for a covenant explain a bit more about that in a moment. It's like you've been wondering about something. Is your dad going to give you this gift? Is he going to give you this brand new car when you just passed your test when you're 17? No, he's not. But you're thinking, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? And dad says, go on then, get the checkbook. And you run out the door to get the checkbook. That's the moment. uh, God says to Aaron, go on, go out, get the ram, get the heifer, get what we need and bring it back. How Abraham must have legged it out the door. It's weird for us though, isn't it? In our world of iPods and George Foreman grills, heifers and rams and birds. But God was acting out the ritual of covenant making in the context of their day. Brilliant. If anyone thinks God does not make the message applicable to each new generation, again they haven't read the Bible. The irony about the King James Version is it was written to make the language available and people say we need to hold on to it because it's the only expression of God's word. Now it isn't making it available to people. It it contradicts the very reason that the King James Bible was created in the first place. God always, always communicates in the means, the language of the culture so that people can be clear to understand. A physical sign. Abraham knew exactly what this meant. Abraham could be certain that he was moving into a covenant relationship with God, a oneness with God that could not be broken. So he rushes out, with great enthusiasm, and slaughters the animals. We might have a few more vegetarians before the end of the sermon. And and, and what he did, uh, stick with this just for a minute, Uh, um, he would slaughter the animals and and cut them in half, lay them from, I'm not sure which way to do this, lay them from from tail to head, the various uh, uh, parts, so that a, a corridor, a river of blood, would run between the two sides, the two pieces of the animals. The blood was to symbolize that the old life, interestingly, I'm standing on top of the baptistry, That the old life was dying, was going to be dead, because the new life of being inextricably joined with your covenant partner was about to begin. The old was dying, something new was beginning. Others speculate that the river of blood uh, was like a birth canal. Uh, and and the, the two parties would walk along this birth canal in a moment to, to, to symbolise the new life that was being formed through this coming together. So what would happen when, when two human parties did this is that one leader uh, representing his whole tribe would stand at one end of the corridor. The other leader representing his whole tribe would stand at the other end of the corridor. And then as part of this ceremony, as part of this moment... They would walk along this canal of death and new life, passing each other along the way, and then stand at respective sides, the opposite sides of their original tribes, taking up their new place. And in those actions, they were declaring a profound level of oneness. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is now yours, they've become one. Now read what happens at verse 10. Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. I laughed out loud when I read this this week. That people are always trying to find symbolism in stuff. Uh, and the NIV study Bible is trying to work out some symbolism here and there. And obviously the, the, the person writing the study notes thinks to himself, there must be some symbolism in why he didn't cut the birds in half. So it says in the NIV footnote, I kid you not, he did not cut the birds enough, probably because they were too small. (laughs) Why didn't he just say, we've got no idea, absolutely, why he didn't cut the birds enough? Because that would be a lot more honest. Because I've got no idea either. But uh, anyway, it's real. These were real animals, but he didn't cut the birds. No idea. Verse 17. When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire with a blazing torch appeared. Hang on. For a covenant, we need two partners. Abraham's there. We need another one. God is the other partner. How do we know? Because smoking fire, a flaming torch, enveloping darkness, were all physical signs of God's presence. We can explain why at another time. But just hold, there were signs of God's presence. This is God saying, I'm here God was the other party. Then difficult for us to grasp, this was the greatest thing Abraham would ever see in the whole of his life. Symbolisms lost on us largely. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God passed between the pieces and stood abraham's side god was saying to abraham in the most incredibly symbolic and powerful way i'm making a covenant with you we are becoming one today god himself sealed the deal god himself united himself with Abraham, this binding agreement. Notice that only God passed through the pieces. That's the only difference between a normal human ceremony. Why? Because it was all God. Abraham had nothing to offer this covenant. He'd done nothing to deserve it, as we've already said. He had nothing to offer it. He didn't even have a child. God did it all. And so we read, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And the story rolls on really quickly. You'll notice that I've been using the word Abraham all the way through just because it's uh, easier. But the first representation, the first sign of this new covenant was that God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And he did the same with Sarah to Sarai well, Sarah to Sarah. And what God does is, is extraordinary. Names are really important for the Jewish people. And God takes the two H's in his name. Y-H-W-H was the, was the, was the, the four letters for Yahweh. Uh, we need to put the vowels in. Of course they didn't. God takes a, one of the H's and gives it to Abraham. Takes the other H and he gives it to Sarah. This is a commitment that will never be broken. We are joining our names Because we will always be one. And so a wife takes on a a husband's name or they join their names in some uh, uh, hyphenated way. Because they're one. God gives them his name. It's also extraordinary because Abraham was called father. Which is a bit harsh, isn't it, if you haven't got any kids. You're down the pub, what's your name? Father, where are your kids? I haven't got any. Do you know what Abraham means? Father of many. I like, Are you joking? How can I go back? How can I go back to the corner shop and say I'm now Abraham, father at Weeriikit? I haven't got any. Extraordinary. The second sign was that of a scar, a permanent mark in the body that was so common with covenants in those days, circumcision. And there, we're only at chapter fifteen, chapter seventeen with these names the world that would have been broken under a curse, the people that have been alienated from God because of their sin, suddenly by faith already, Abraham's brought right back in. Hallelujah. Right back in. Humanly though, things are not doing too well. Abraham's 99. Sarah's well past it. No kids. We're now nearly 25 years on since the promise. And just as an aside, 25 years on, you know, just as an aside, God's pace is different to ours. See, this is the most important thing. This is the main storyline of the whole of the earth. This is God's main priority, his number one deal. And he's still waiting and hanging around for 25 years. When you pray, God, sort me out, and you've prayed that prayer for a week and you feel totally upset and disillusioned that nothing has happened, take courage from Abraham's story. God's pace is different to ours. God's plan is different to ours. You see, Abraham thought, well, perhaps we ought to do something about this to hurry God up. Be very, 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 very aware of ever trying to hurry God up. Have you tried to hurry God up? It ends in disaster. You tried to hurry God up, he kind of said, well, let's sort out this plan. In fact, Sarah came and said, well, why don't we work this plan? Why don't you sleep with my younger mistress? Abraham makes no objection, says, yeah, we'll give this a go. It was supposed to be funny, but it wasn't, obviously. Uh, and, and, and that's what they did. But the pressure on their marriage and in their family was too much to bear. Sarah couldn't take it anymore. And it caused havoc. They'd messed around with God's plan and God's purpose. God's pace is different. God's plan is different. You've got to hang on in there. You've got to hang on in there. And then eventually, in the fullness of time, Abraham's 100. Sarah becomes pregnant. She just laughs. What else can you do when you're 100 and you find yourself in the club? She just laughed. It's just beyond. I cannot imagine this. Some of you have been mums in your 30s. Can't imagine what it might be like to be a mum in your hundredth year. That wasn't meant to be funny, but obviously it was. <laughs> It's weird, isn't it? I'd love to have two goes at a sermon. One where I kind of put what I think might be slightly sort of just relaxing for a moment in and nobody moves, like I'm deadly serious. And the most important stuff, everyone sits there going. (laughs) You know, Then I could do it all again and I'd learn from it. Mind you, you've heard preachers like that that just say the same thing every week, so perhaps that's not so bad. Perhaps it's not so bad. 25 years on, 100 years of age. I get this baby, wow hold him in their arms this is the promise God has been faithful our covenant partner has provided and protected us and then unimaginably the twist in the story and I am coming into land but not very fast the twist in the story God says that boy that promise of the covenant That firstborn son in whom now rest your hopes and dreams. Take him. Take the wood. And go sacrifice him to me. So Abraham exhibits the most amazing obedience. Gathers the wood, the fire and makes the journey. Isaac is bound and the knife is raised ready to plunge. He's going to do it. You see here, This is an illustration of the consequence of the main theme of the story, the consequence of the covenant. Why was Abraham able to walk at a level of obedience that we can't even imagine? Why? You see, most preachers just tend to say, most books just tend to say, Abraham exhibited amazing faith. Now you go and do the same. Cheers. Thanks. I know I should do that. But I don't feel like I've got any faith like that. How did Abe, I need to know, how did Abraham get that kind of faith? The consequence of the covenant was that because God and Abraham were now intimately joined, irrevocably connected, the two become one. Abraham was totally confident in God. Because that's what a covenant means. So secure that if God said sacrifice your own son, even if that son humanly seemed to be the only means of the promise being fulfilled, if covenant God says that, Abraham knew God could be trusted. He knew God would never fail him, desert him or abandon him. That God would, remember the covenant promise, that God would protect and provide. And so off they go to the place of sacrifice. The secret of Abraham's obedient faith was that he was totally secure in God and therefore can have absolute confidence in him. If I'm going to exhibit that kind of faith, I need to be that secure, don't you? You see, the reason we haven't got much faith is that we're not very secure and we're not very confident. Every error of my life that isn't secure in Christ, I'm pretty useless at serving Christ with. That's why again and again in the New Testament it says, in Christ, in Christ, I can do all things in Christ, in Christ, every part of my life that isn't secure and confident in Christ is totally useless in the ways and purposes of God. Abraham was bold and courageous and faithful because he'd learnt what it was to be in God. He knew that his identity was found in this covenant oneness. And that's why Jesus called his first disciples, first and foremost, to find that same identity. Jesus says to the twelve, Come, come, come and be. Anyone read any of the Bible? Come and be with me. Then he sent them out. We'll get to that next week. Come and be with me. Come and be confident that you belong to me, that we are together in this, that we are on the team together. But there's something more. There's something more here. Remember what we said about how Abraham had been brought up, the culture of appeasing the gods, the escalating cycle of offering more and more. Even your firstborn covenant and he calls you and me to come there too safe secure done totally sorted I can't earn it I've done nothing to deserve it and I can't earn it I've got nothing to bring to it but it has been given to us you are acceptable you are loved You do belong. You are safe. You are secure. And it's nothing to do with you. It's all about God who says, come into this covenant with me today. How do I get in? By faith. By faith. The consequence of the covenant was that Abraham could trust God so much that he could offer his own son. But equally, the consequence of the covenant was that God loved Abraham so much that he didn't have to. Hallelujah. Didn't have to. Those days are gone. Earning your right to get with God, they're gone. Don't live in the old way. It's more than 4,000 years old. That's how old some of us are, sometimes in the way that we live. And we bring it right back up to date when people, even now, will be trying to earn, to appease their guilt, their disappointment with themselves, trying to earn their way to a higher spirituality It's as old as the year is long. But you don't have to. In the thicket, Abraham looked up and saw the ram. God will provide. Hey, we're stuffed for time, aren't we? Look at it. It's 10 past 12 already. I'm going to speak, right, for three minutes and then we're going to sing and then we're going to go. Is that okay? If you want to go now, you can. That's fine. Um... Uh, Because what I want to do, just for three minutes, and it would be a shame not to, is that these verses are are, are literally littered with signs to Jesus. You know how we had those grace notes at the end? Where's that? Here we go. Uh, At the end of last week, signs in Genesis 1 to 11 of what the plan was. Well, all over these verses, these chapters, and you would understand it, wouldn't you, why they're there. All over these verses are signs as to why God walked between the pieces. Whose blood? Who paid for God to walk from there to here? Well, signs are all over it. And in two minutes i got left now, we're going to do it really quick. Have you noticed the blood that sealed the covenant? Who would have thought that one day the blood, the river that would flow would be from a cross of God's son. Did you notice the way God moved to seal the covenant? God went from one side to the other, because one day God would come from one side heaven right the way down to the other side earth. And not only do they cross sides, in crossing sides they were saying, what's yours is mine. What's mine is, what did we have to give God except our filthy sinful rags. And the Bible says God who made him who had no sin, to what? To be sin. To be totally and utterly identified with me. He took what was mine. I had nothing to offer except my sin and he he took my sin. That's what covenant means. Did you notice that God provided uh, uh, a lamb uh, sorry, did you notice the scar, sorry, that uh, Abraham carried in his body? Who, who would have thought that today in heaven there's a scar on the hands and side of our Lord Jesus Christ? There is, who, who would have imagined that one day God himself would carry the scar of the covenant? Did you notice how God provided the lamb? Who'd have thought that one day John the Baptist would be baptising and Jesus would come and John would go, look, look, look! This is, this is the lamb. This is the lamb. Everybody knew what lambs were for. You didn't eat them. It was not their primary purpose. It was not mint sauce. This was sacrifice. This was a shedding. Look, the lamb of, of God coming to take away the sin of the world. Did you notice where God found the lamb? Have you realized that the spot where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac is the exact same spot when God would not withhold the knife for his own son? Never think that what you do for God is more than what he does for you. Never think that, ever. He has done immeasurably more than he ever ever asks of us. That same spot. Have you noticed that? And did you know, I love this, did you know that when Abraham makes his way with his son to the altar that day, he thinks, my goodness, I don't know how God's going to fix this. But God can do everything. He can even raise Isaac from the dead. Who'd have thought that one day, That's exactly what God would do with his son. Amazing. Let's pray.